Man. That's a parade. So uh, this is really cool. This is the first time I can remember teaching during a service when the kids are in here during worship. That's pretty cool. I guess it's the fifth Sundays, and so I've missed out on the last few of these. So that was really encouraging. Uh, Good morning and welcome to Awaken Church. My name is Frank. I am one of the pastors that has the joy and privilege of being able to serve you all here. And before we're going to jump in today, we're going to do something that we've never done before as a church, but probably should have done a long time ago. We announced this a few weeks ago, but some of you might not have been here, and for those of you who are not or just don't remember, that's totally okay. Right now, Larry Kurt is going to be passing out uh, what we've called our pastor reaffirmation forms and uh, some pens. Hopefully you guys have pens because evidently our thousand some odd pens that we purchased just a few months ago are all gone. So don't know how those pens walked out. But uh, as, you're, as Larry's passing out these forms, just kind of pass them down and hold on to them plus a pen. Larry's got a few if you don't have one while I explain what these are. So, uh, you know, I remember growing up and uh, being able to trust your authorities. Uh, Growing up, being able to trust police officers, teachers, uh, parents, other parents, uh, your own parents, um, pastors, and even the president of the United States, right? But somewhere along the way, things changed. Somewhere along the way, for better or for worse, the world we live in today is not the world that I grew up in. And Today, there have been too many stories about leaders who have abused their power, uh, taken advantage of their positions, and I think everyone in here will agree that when someone in authority does that type of thing, abuses their authority or takes advantage of their position, that that is wrong. And one of the things that our church has been wrestling with over the course of this year and even in uh, the end of last year has been how does our church want to grow from understanding what our environment is like. And so as a church, we've taken a number of different steps since the beginning of the year. Um, early on in, in February and March, we told you guys and shared with you all that we've been putting together our awakened code of conduct and awakened whistleblower policy because it's really important for us that as a church that we all have a same way, we have a common language in understanding what's appropriate and what is not appropriate in this church. And if something you notice inappropriate does happen, church, how we can respond. What are we supposed to do about that? What can we do about that? And so we put that into place in the spring. Over the course of this summer, um, most of you heard about, and we had a small team of people go over to Redeemer Church to be a part of active shooter training because, again, we live in a crazy world where things we never imagined 20 years ago could happen are happening. And so we went to that to kind of imagine, reimagine, well, how can we better secure our church without being paranoid either, right? And then if something does happen, um, how might we respond? Or are there things we can do even now to keep that from happening potentially? So that's a step we've taken as well. And then this one is another step in that direction. And uh, there hasn't been anything that's happened in this church. I don't want you to freak out. Is there something going on or need? There's not. This is just one of the ways that as a church, we've understood, we come to understand that uh, even though you guys freely offer, for the most part, right, your trust, we don't want to as leaders take it for granted. 
And this is an opportunity that we're going to, to hand these out and have you guys speak into our lives. As most of you know, there are three pastors that serve and shepherd this church. It's myself, Andrew Roberts, and Richard Dubay. I can't see with this light in my face exactly where you guys are, but if you could just stand up real quick so everyone gets a chance to see your faces. Are you here? Okay, that's Andrew. And then Richard is somewhere in here. Oh, Richard's in the back dropping off rascals. Okay, sounds good. So we have, you have three pastors that are serving this church. And one of the things that we want to do is take this time to go through this reaffirmation where you're going to be able to speak into our lives. So here's what this pastoral reaffirmation is not. Let me start there. This is not a vote, right? This isn't like, hmm, I like this guy, but that Chinese guy just really know. You know, that's not the way this works because that's not how our church is governed necessarily. We're not one of those churches where we have pastors come up to be voted on by the congregation every year or every other year. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we're not going to get into this morning. We do have a process where our congregation speaks and votes in a sense. Um, as we're ordaining someone, we just don't check it, recheck it, revote every single year, every other year. That's not what this is. Instead, what this is designed to be is an opportunity for you, church, to have this and to check off and say, yes, I believe in and affirm the pastors that serve this church. I'm excited about their leadership, and I want to share some ways that I can encourage them and also have them consider how they might be able to serve more effectively. Or for you as a congregation to be able to say, no, I am struggling, specifically with one of you, maybe with all of you, and it has been hard recently for me to feel like I can follow your leadership. And I appreciate you inviting me to give you an opportunity to share why. Does that make sense? That's what this is for. And so I want to just give you a minute or two to go ahead and uh, under the each name, you'll see affirm, not affirm, whatever, just kind of check off. And then in the comment section, just go ahead and share either for those of you who are excited, man, this is one of the reasons why I'm excited about following y'all's leadership and maybe even a way that I want to encourage and challenge you guys. And if it's not, if there has been a concern, we want to, as pastors, invite you into an opportunity to share why, what, what way we can minister more effectively uh, to you. So take a moment and do that. And I want to speak finally to one last group of people. And that's the group of people in here that are in this room. It's like, um, I'm kind of new here and I have no idea what this is all about. I'm feeling kind of awkward. I'll just hold on to this paper and kind of tuck it under. That's totally okay as well. If you want to hand it in blank, no problemo. Just kind of look like you're kind of doing something so nobody looks at you weird, right? I'm just kidding. So, um, or if you would rather just say, you know what? One of the things I really appreciated about the church I came from, or even when I thought about coming to church, this is one of the ways I hoped to have a relationship with my pastor. And maybe if that's like, okay, it's not something I've seen going on, but man, I would love to see that in my life. I would love for this to be a way that the pastors in this church can minister to me. Go ahead and write that down as well. Names are optional, but uh, if you are giving specific feedback that like challenges us or if there's a problem, it would help if it's on there. That way we get a chance to follow up. Is that good? All right. I'll shut up for a moment, give you a minute, and then we'll collect during announcements. So if you need some extra time, go ahead and do that. But I'll kind of just for a bit and let you write.
If you guys want to keep writing, go ahead and do so. I'm going to pray and open this up, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for the joy, honor, and privilege of being able to be in your presence, to know that you love us, to have this opportunity as the family of believers to come and worship you. You are worthy, God. Even if we were to offer our lives, our every breath, it would not be sufficient to be able to express how thankful and how grateful we are that you, Jesus, came to us, that you stepped out of heaven and into flesh to die for us, to live for us, to die for us, to rise again from the dead, to bring us from death to life, that that's the journey that we've taken with you. For those of us who have put our trust in you, put our hope in you, and believed unto you, oh God, you've taken us on this journey from death to life and even life everlasting. We're excited about this time, that in this time, in this morning, Lord, for the opportunity to just get a taste of heaven, a taste of what it will be like for all eternity spent with you, to be able to enjoy one another, to be able to enjoy you most of all. Pray that your Holy Spirit will lead and direct this time. Thank you that your desire to, to teach, lead, and instruct us is greater than our desire to learn, and yet we sit before you here, God, praying that your Holy Spirit would minister to us and draw us closer to you. Pray that you help us to set aside every distraction and every distracting thought and every idea that might keep us from being able to enter fully into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So for those of you guys who were here last week, you know that we just dove into a series that we've entitled My Offering. And the goal of this series is to take a deeper look in what it looks like for us to become more generous. And generous as God defines generosity, not how we imagine generosity. Because the way God defines generosity is oftentimes different than how the world does. When we think about generosity, we often think about how much we give or who or what that we're giving to. And of course, that matters to God. But what matters even more is the way we give. Are we investing our temporary finances, our temporary treasures in eternal things, into things that will last forever? Or are we giving it to something that is not going to last forever? Or as we shared last week, stuff or stories. And this week we're going to take a deeper look at how God views money and resources and this idea of generosity a bit differently than we do. And how God might be wanting to reshape how we imagine generosity so that we might spend and give as he does, or at very least how he might want us to. So before we dive in, I want to share two more things that we are starting next week, a financial class to give you some hands and feet, some practicals that we might not be able to communicate adequately from the pulpit. And so we'll be starting those classes next week at 845. It's going to be six weeks covering practicals like how to develop a budget, dealing with debt, investing for the future, and living a generous 
life. We did this about three years ago was the last time we ran through. And so for those of you who weren't able to go through that in that season or excited about going through it again or has not had a chance to, to do so, go ahead and pull out your phones and, and sign up on our website under events and just say, yeah, I really think I would love to understand better what it looks like to give, to be a giver the way, uh, to be generous the way that God has called me to. And I'm I feel like my money sometimes in finances have got a hold of me or it's a bit out of control and I would love some practicals how not to be able to manage that more effectively uh, and more biblically. So that's number one. Second, as always, this is uh, whenever we get into practical teachings and sermons, uh, we have Awaken Q&A. For those of you who don't know what Awaken Q&A is, it's a time where if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts during the course of the teaching, feel free to text them to Awaken Q&A at gmail.com. It's going to be on every slide. And at the end of our time, we'll take a few minutes to tackle your questions, comments, or thoughts. All good? All right. Then let's dive in today, and let's start with this uncomfortable principle that God oftentimes teaches about the idea of generosity, and that principle is in God's kingdom, when it comes to generosity, inequality is fair. Inequality is fair. You know, our world and our American politics spends a lot of time talking about this idea of inequality and how it's very unfair uh, this idea of income inequality in particular. I know it, inequality covers a broad swath of ideas in our culture, and I'd love to tackle those another time. But for the sake of this morning, we're going to focus on this idea of what income inequality looks like. Statistically, the gap between rich and poor is greater than it ever has been in our nation's history, which is crazy because unemployment and the number of poor uh, in our country is at a historic low. So basically what that means is even though all of the country, for the most part, the, the country is doing well, and most of us, the vast majority of us, are doing really well, those who are rich are doing far better than the rest of us. And that has become, according to our politicians and those who are vying for our votes, become an issue of concern. And it hasn't gone unnoticed. We notice it too. And that's where it becomes a bit problematic, because I think most of us are going to be okay with the idea that different people have different amounts of money. That's okay with us. But when it somehow seems like inequality is baked into the system, that's where things can get really frustrating. Why is it that the rich get so much richer and the rest of us don't gain nearly as much? That can be problematic for us. And yet, what if God's kind of okay with that idea? What if God's okay with that idea? Maybe he wants us to be as well. What would that say about God, right? And how would that change how we view rich and how we view poor? I want to focus this morning spending our time uh, in the book of Matthew, going through a story that Jesus tells, a parable, and in the latter chapters of Matthew, God spends, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about what it looks like someday. He shares a number of different parables about the future. So yes, he's sharing stories about what it will be like someday. In particular, what it will be like when the Messiah returns. That was the hope of Israel, the day when the Messiah would return from heaven on clouds, with a mighty shout, in power, and with authority, 
coming back to claim his own, to gather his people from all across the earth. That was the hope of Israel. And that, in many ways, represents our hope today as well, doesn't it? Because as Christians, that's one of the things we are putting our hope and trust in, is that God is going to someday return. And when he does, he will set all things right. Because if this life represents all of our hope, then we, as Paul shared in the Bible, we, of all people, should be most pitied. Our hope is not simply in this life, but in the life to come and in the return of Christ. So that is where hope comes from for us as Christians and the hope of Israel. And so Jesus takes some time in the latter part of his ministry sharing a number of different parables about how his disciples, and that includes us today, might prepare ourselves for that time when he returns. And one of these stories is found in the book of Matthew chapter 25, and it begins this way, starting in verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a trip. So as we shared before, even in our last series on parables, that when we go through these parables, oftentimes there is a God, you know, someone representing God. And in this case, it's going to be the master in this story. And he's about to go away on a trip. He calls together his servants and gives them money to invest for him while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last servant, dividing in proportion to their abilities, and then left on his trip. So, common theme, Jesus oftentimes uses parables to share what the kingdom of God is like. And what that means practically is this is what a world under God's authority and rule is going to look like. In other words, this is how you should live as citizens of the kingdom, rather than in according to the ways of this world. And the story begins with a master, that's representing God, gives each of his servants a certain amount of money to invest for him while he is gone. Bags of silver. Uh, in other versions, uh, outside of the New Living Translation, these can be called talents. And each talent, for our frame of reference, uh, represents about 70 pounds, 75 pounds of silver, which is kind of a heavy bag. But 75 pounds of silver, which in today's dollars would be about $19,000. So each talent is about 75 pounds of silver, representing about $19,000. So even the one that just received one talent or one bag of silver is still getting a considerable amount of money to invest by his master. And the important thing to notice before we move on in this story is, yes, the master does give different amounts of money to his different servants according to their abilities, according to how capable he sees them as being. And the implication was that the servant who was most responsible and most capable was given the most money to invest, while the one who is seen as least responsible, least capable, was given the least amount of money to invest. Inequality is fair. I want to say this before we dive into the rest of the story, because I don't want us to continue throwing out this, huh, we throwing out this, I'm throwing out this uncomfortable little phrase, um, and not understanding what it means. The idea behind it is we have to first accept that not all of us are equal. Some are wealthier than others. Some of us carry more debt than others. Some of us bear more responsibility than others. Some of us are just more capable in certain arenas 
than others. That doesn't mean anything good or bad. That just speaks to the uniqueness of our lives. The fact that we're not all equal in that sense is not something meant to be demeaning, and it certainly has nothing to do with our intrinsic sense of value or our intrinsic worth. God values us all of the same. Jesus died for all. He didn't pick and choose in that sense. But equal value is different from God treating us all the same. So my oldest son is Josiah. He is 19 years old. He's now in Gainesville hanging out as a college student, starting his third year of college. And while he is out there, he is responsible for uh, paying for his school, uh, paying for his own bills, paying rent, paying for his utilities, covering the cost of his car, paying for gas, all of that fun stuff. And yes, my wife and I contribute some, we help out some, but for the most part, he has to manage how he is going to survive while in college. My youngest daughter is Danielle. She is 14 years old. She does get an allowance, and that allowance is tied to the chores she does. But as parents, we cover most of her expenses. We do feed her. We give her clothes. We give her shoes, the whole nine yards. And we give her rides whenever she needs to go and be somewhere. In our family, Josiah has more responsibility, more obligations, and more money than our 14-year-old daughter, Danielle, does. But you certainly understand that it's not because we love Josiah more than we love Danielle. That is absolutely not the case at all. We love them the same. They're both our children, but we're not treating them equally. Does that make sense? That might help you understand a bit better more this idea of what do you mean when I say inequality is fair. So we're going to continue on with the story, and we'll circle back to this idea again. Verse 16, the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. The master gave these three servants different amounts of money, but with the same expectation. Invest it and gain some return from it. And that's the idea that God often gives when we think about money and what God wants to do, what God wants us to do with money, to realize it's not ours and we are, when we have it, to do what God wants us to do with it, we're to invest it for some type of increase, with the hope of seeing some type of increase come from it. Doing nothing is not a responsible option. Two of the servants obey. Two of the servants choose to put the money God, the master, has given them to work, invest it, and they happen to see a return. One did not. He chooses to bury the money, and therefore he did not use the money in a way that his master had intended. So we'll read through an extended part right now. Verse 19. After a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom we entrusted five bags of silver said, Sir, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have doubled the amount. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Woo! Right? Next came the servant, I added the woo. Next came the servant who'd received two bags of silver with the report, Sir, you gave me two bags to invest, and I have doubled the amount. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let us celebrate together. Woo! Right? It's a long passage. But I hope it provides insight as to how God wants us to view money. All of these servants, all three servants, clearly understood what the master wanted them to do. Two of them decided to use that money that was given to them in the way that the master intended. And as a result, the master decided to give them more. But I want you to notice what he gave them. His reward wasn't, dude, you guys did a great job handling and investing the money. I'm going to give you a cut of the profit. No, that's not what he gave them. He gave them more responsibility. Makes me think, well, wait, that's not a reward. I, I put things to work for you, and I see a profit, and you come back, and you just give me more to do. But I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea that God's trying to capture, that we want, I want us to capture in this, is that God saw what they were truly capable of and gave them responsibility in accordance to their capability. And isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want bosses who see our true potential and see what we're really capable of and then put us in a position to do what we do best and then be adequately compensated for it, right? Isn't that what we most want when we go off to work or whatever job it is that we do? To know that the person we're working for sees our full potential, sees what we're capable of, and gives us responsibility and compensation in accordance to that. That's exciting. That's much better than being in an environment where we feel like we're capped, there's a glass ceiling, we're underachieving because no one believes in us. And this passage is saying God saw what they were capable of, believed in them, and gave them responsibility according to their abilities. Story continues, verse 24. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Sir, I know you are a hard man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth, and here it is. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. You think I'm a hard man, do you? Harvesting crops I didn't plant and gathering crops I didn't cultivate. Well, you should have at least put my money into the bank so I could have had some interest. Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 bags of silver. So the third servant acts differently. He chose to hide the money rather than invest the money. He disobeyed. Why? The Bible says why. He was afraid. He was afraid of losing what he had been given. And I think sometimes for me, when I read this story, I can be a bit harsh. I'm like, who would take money, $20,000, when the master tells you to go invest it and just go bury it? And then I realize, man, money makes me afraid all the time. I'm afraid, too, of losing what I have, even if I know objectively what we have really isn't all that much. But it is to me, Right? Because this is what we have to live on. This is what we have to spend on. This is the, we have to buy the things we need for this. We have to buy the things we want with this. And we can get protective over our stuff. So I can understand. I mean, we don't agree. But we understand how that might feel. Because we've been there too. In a place where we realize, yeah, I might not be burying the money. But I'm certainly hoarding or protective of it. Because I'm afraid of losing it. 
inequality is fair. So the master takes this one bag, his $20,000, and says, not only am I taking this away from you, I'm actually going to give it to the one who has 10 bags. How is that fair? Jesus explains it in verse 29. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who are unfaithful, even what little they have will be taken away. I shared earlier that uh, in the world we live in, there is this growing concern about this idea of income inequality, that there's a greater gap, a growing gap between those who are rich and the rest of us. And our politicians and our world and our media have made this into an issue that we are concerned about. And for us, too, maybe we didn't even need that. We just look around and we feel like there's this sense that things are not fair. And again, as I shared earlier, most of us, if not all of us, can accept that, okay, I can accept that there are going to be rich people. I can accept that there are successful people, people more successful than I am, who have more money than I do. I just get frustrated when that inequality seems like it's baked into the system. And when I say baked in the system, what that means is no matter how hard some people try, they can't ever get ahead. They can't ever be as successful as those others are. That's because the system won't allow them to. And that's what is tough for most of us. And with that, I agree with you. The, tr- the problem is the opposite, the alternative isn't all that much better, right? The alternative might be, well, we bake into the system a way to make sure everyone has the same amount, but that's not really fair either, is it? Because then those of us who are more creative, who are more gifted, then maybe we're not being compensated the way that we think we ought to be, and that's not really a fair system either. And so here is Jesus coming in and sharing this story, and I want to make it clear that Jesus is not taking a side on What is better, capitalism or socialism? The point is, God has a system that works and the world does not. That's the point that's being made. Jesus is saying the world system, whatever system that might be, capitalism, socialism, communism, whatever the case may be, when it comes to money, is corrupt and broken. The only system that works is God's. God's system is whatever amount of wealth we have been given... We are to spend in the way God wants us to, intends for us to. And when we spend what God gives us the way he intends us to, we will inevitably see an increase. And we understand that's not true. This parable, even though it focuses on money, isn't just true about money. It's true about our talents, our abilities, our uh, giftings. That when we invest those things, the things that God gives us in the way God intends for us to, there will always be some type of increase. God will always multiply our returns. The issue is not how much you've been given. It's not how much you have from the master. It's how faithful you're going to be. That's why this passage came across this way, why Jesus shares it this way, that the faithful one receives more, and the unfaithful, even what they have, will be taken away. It's a faithfulness issue, not a how much quantity issue. But, so that's the primary lesson, right? 
of that comes from this parable, comes from this story, that, the, that God's currency, God's economy is better than anything the world has to offer, and God's economy is built on faithfulness, not quantity. If you're faithful with what he gives you, by doing what he wants you to do with it, he will give you an increase. But there's a more subtle lesson in here, too. And that subtle lesson I don't want us to miss, because that subtle lesson will unlock the key for us to learn also how we might be generous. And here's the subtle lesson. It was always the master's money. All of it. It was all his. This wasn't the servant's money that was invested. It was the master's the whole time. Everything that was given Every penny of it, every iota of it, right? Everything that was being asked to be invested. The master took all of the risk. It was all his the entire time. In Psalm 24, 1, this is what uh, the psalmist shares. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Deuteronomy 10. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. Here's the point. Everything belongs to God. God is the owner of everything, of all things. And if you can understand this, if you accept this, that yes, God, you own everything, that will unlock your ability to experience the generous life. If you can't accept it, if you won't accept it, then what you're going to find is inevitably you're going to be caught up in the world system in some way, shape, or form, and you'll be fearful, anxious, and worried, chasing after more and more riches for the rest of your life. Those are the only two options you have. I will either buy into God's system or the world system. There's nothing in between. God owns it all. And the reason why this is going to be the key that unlocks the idea of what generosity looks like in our lives is if God owns all, then we understand that we are no longer or never were the owners. We are simply stewards. And stewardship means I don't own, I'm simply entrusted with. I simply take care of. So uh, I grew up in a family of four. Uh, it was my mom, my dad, me, and my younger brother. And uh, growing up, uh, we weren't all that rowdy. I mean, we weren't all that dirty. You know, we weren't messy kids. We just, but we grew up in nice houses. My dad, um, my family is, is I, don't, I wouldn't say we grew up rich, but we were upper middle class, and we did pretty well. And I remember my, my parents, uh, from when we were little kids, had this um, living room set. It was a set of couches. And it was really, really nice. It was, it was brown with white swirls in it. It was just really, really nice material. It was pretty expensive. And, um, and for the most part, it seemed like it was really comfortable. And I say seemed like it was comfortable because I actually never got a chance to sit on the actual couch itself. And the reason why I never got a chance to sit on the actual couch itself is because my parents covered it in plastic. Right? Do you guys remember that growing up? Yeah, you had these couches that your parents would cover in plastic, and you sat down in it. And of course, we chose to live in places like Florida, so you sit down on these plastic couches, and you sweat a little bit, and when you get up, you hear the you know, as it comes off your skin and your back and all that stuff. They had zippers in all these weird places, and it got a bit yellow at times. That was what 
I sat in and what I grew up in. And, and so whenever we had guests come over, we would sit on the nice furniture, but not really sitting on the nice furniture. We'd sit on the plastic version of the nice furniture because my parents didn't want the couches they had to get ruined. And looking back, that seems like it's so crazy, isn't it? that our parents would do that? Because what's the point? The point of buying a couch is to sit on it and to enjoy it. And instead, my parents wrapped it up in plastic so that we wouldn't damage it or, uh, or ruin it in some way, shape, or form. I share that story with you because for me, that's the difference between how owners think and how stewards think. Owners want to protect what they have, right? That's the nature of owning things is we spent hard-earned money to buy this thing, and I want to protect it from getting damaged. I want to protect it. When we do so, we protect these things because we're afraid it might get damaged. We're afraid it might get ruined. We're afraid it might get lost. We're afraid it might get stolen or taken away from us. Those who live as owners are in a constant state of anxiety, fear, and discontent, always fixated on what else they need, what else they want, and how can I earn more to get what I want. That's how owners think. It's always uh, built on fear, anxiety, and worry. Stewards think differently. Stewards accept that uh, none of this really belongs to us. It all belongs to the owner, and whatever the owner wants to do with it is what I'm supposed to do with it. Does that make sense? It's a total shift in perspective. None of this stuff belongs to us, and because it doesn't belong to me, because I'm not the owner, all I have to do is take care of it the way my, the owner wants it to be taken care of, to do with it the, what the owner wants done with it. We are caretakers. And what that means is now we are free because we don't have to be in control of everything. We don't have to provide everything. God provides, we steward. In Psalm 34, God shares this comforting verse for those who are willing to embrace the stewardship life. And he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good so in a couple minutes, we're going to go ahead and tackle our Awaken Q&A. So if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, feel free to text them now. AwakenQ&A at gmail.com. And I'll go ahead and tackle those. But before I do, I want to close out with uh, this passage found in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, I want to share just this final thought with you all. It says, tell those who are rich in this world, and that's us, if you make $33,000 a year, you are in the top 1%. You are in the top 1% in terms of wealthiest people in the world, okay? So most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, fall in that category, being in the top 1% of wealthiest people on the planet. Let me tell those who are rich in this world, that's us, not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. By the way, if you ever want proof that you're not an owner, the idea of an owner is it belongs to me and to no one else. What happens to all of your money and things when you die? You don't take it with you, right? It means you're not an owner. You might think you are, but you're not because there's nothing that you have that you will take with you forever, right? So don't be proud. 
Don't trust in money, which will soon be gone. But their trust should be in the living God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them, isn't that a novel idea? Sometimes we're like, all right, if I'm a steward for Jesus, then that means every single dollar has to be spent on something spiritual, and I can't have any fun with it. That's not the case. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need. Always, always, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. That's the perspective of a steward. I'm always going to be generous because it's not mine. It's what God has given me, I'm going to give away. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of real life. God gives us everything we have, from the air we breathe to the life we live. God gives thoughtfully, God gives generously, God gives abundantly. And as an owner, right, I'm sorry, as stewards, we must accept that who God is as an owner is he's going to be both predictable and unpredictable, right? He is absolutely predictable in the sense that God says, I promise you will be given all that you need. The unpredictable part is God says, but I'm not always going to tell you how I'm going to do it. You will have all you need, and that's predictable. You can count on that. You can take it to the bank. But how? I'm not always going to tell you how. You just have to trust me, and don't doubt that I will. And for those of us who are able to view generosity from God's perspective as stewards and not owners, then it becomes so much easier to do what we talked about last week, right? To be able to use money and to view money as, as not the end goal, but a means to accomplish that end. Because it's easier to be generous with someone else's money, especially when they have an unlimited amount and they tell us to be generous, right? And that's exactly the point that God wants to make. You can be generous. You don't have to hold on because it's not yours. And where this came from, there's a lot more. Amen? All right, let's talk with some Q&A. Are you teaching that when we invest our finances into kingdom work, the increase we receive in return will be financial as well. Are you teaching that when we invest our finances in kingdom work, the increase we receive in return will be financial as well? Uh, you know, I wish. No, not always, right? That is not necessarily the case. And actually, I just read it in First Timothy, right? That uh, be ready to share, that you give, when you give the way God tells you to, in verse 19, by doing this, they will be storing up a treasure, Right? as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of real life. No, not necessarily, although I don't rule that necessarily out, but we're not, um, yes, I, we're not promoting this ideology that, well, uh, you invest money God's way, then you're going to gain a tenfold return financially from God, and that's wealth and prosperity type gospel. That's not necessarily what uh, I'm communicating here. Uh, but what I am saying is when God tells us to invest what is not ours, what is his anyway, in the way that he tells us to, we will see a return. And the type of return God is talking about is we're investing and we're reaping eternal rewards. The rich and poor have this in common. 
The Lord has made them both. Yes, absolutely. Proverbs 22, 2. Thanks for sharing that. What is a good place to invest? How did the two obedient servants know what to do? That's a great question. I've wondered at times, Lord, what if they didn't make money? They lost it, because that's me. I'm not really good at money, and I might stick it someplace, and we just take a loss, and I'm like, oh, you know? And, and uh, anyway, so what would, what would happen? So I'll say, if you're asking that on a practical level, like, hey, I'm not sure about investing in and uh, beyond just investing spiritually like you're talking about, Frank, I'm actually talking about a specific concrete place, way to park my money, and what is a biblical way to kind of uh, bring that out. Then I'll say this. I think the financial classes are going to be a tremendous benefit, right? They're going to walk through biblical principles of how we are to manage our funds in a way that's responsible and God-honoring. And so go through, sign up right now, and go through those classes for six weeks. And I think walking out of that, you'll have much greater insight into what God says on this idea of practical investment. And pray, yeah. Prayer is also a big part, right? That, uh, and listen, right? God has a number of different principles that he shares throughout his word on how we are to be responsible with what he has given us. How do you think the master God would have reacted the servant invested but lost all the money? I just said that's what I was wondering. I don't know. I don't know. I do. Nope, I won't say that. Ah, maybe. Well, I do think that the master, again, what God does is he entrusts us, right? And it's a measure of our faithfulness and our responsibility. I think if our faithfulness is there and the result was lost, I think, again, God takes that into account. What he's measuring is not how much more he's going to get. Again, God owns everything already, right? That's not God's ambition. But what he does want to test is our faithfulness, our trust in him, and the heart behind what we are doing and why we are doing it. So, but it would have been an interesting story that way, maybe a bit more interesting for me. I appreciate the distinction that God's system of economy, one based on faithfulness, is the only one that works. When we read in Acts about the early church, they had everything in common, but all acted faithfully with what they had, yes. When Ananias and Sapphira were unfaithful with the profit of their property, they received the same treatment as the man who buried the silver. Well, they got it. But yes, similar idea. Uh, does it mean that those who are poor, homeless, etc., around the world are unfaithful to God? Can you elaborate on that a little more? That's a great question. Um, so I'll start by saying no. I don't necessarily believe that is the case, but it could for some. Um, I do believe that there are some who are in a disadvantaged uh, disadvantageous, a non-advantageous position because they've chosen to, even as believers, use what they've been given in irresponsible and unfaithful ways, and they're experiencing consequences of that. I absolutely believe that is true for some. That is not true for all, right? That's certainly not the case for all. There are many who are living in poverty and and in challenging situations, and for us, I think it's, it's or even for me, I think it's a tough thing to be able to to speak about, uh, I will just say simply this, right? Um, God consistently throughout the scriptures, right, um, measures women and men um, by his standards, right? He says, what is it in, uh, in 1 Samuel? It says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, right? 
and God's measures are not ours. And I trust, we trust, that God's judgment, whatever it is going to be, is going to be just and fair. That means that if you're faithful and you're broke and you have no clothes and yet you are faithful, God is going to reward you the same as if you're a millionaire and you are being faithful with what God has entrusted you to do. The issue is not quantity. The issue is faithfulness. That's what God sees that maybe no one else in the world will see, but God does, right? And that's the one whom we seek to please. And, uh, and I'll also say this, right? Um, we have no idea. We have no idea at all uh, what it's going to look like when God rewards us in heaven. Uh, there's the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And the rewards that he got, that this poor man who had nothing in this life, his reward for faithfulness after his death was to be at the side of Abraham, right? I think that's, uh, there's something beautiful about that. And uh, our hope, our trust must be in God who is just, in God who is fair, in God who will adequately and appropriately bless those who have been faithful to him. And so I'll say, regardless of how we might see things from the outside, that should not be the basis of our judgment on their standing before God, right? Because man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. I am running out of time. I am... If I, so if I'm struggling financially, does that indicate I have a character flaw, i.e. irresponsible? I hope that tackled that question as well. I think, no. Money is a measure, and how we steward it. Jesus, there's a reason why Jesus spent so much time talking about money. He spoke more about money than he did about heaven, right, and hell. And this was an important issue for him because the way we handle it is a measure of our true faith and faithfulness in God, right? It's a reflection of our faith in him. Um, that being said, I think it's dangerous to tie a direct correlation between how much we might have in any given moment with uh, how faithful or f we are, right? So I would say if you're struggling financially, does that indicate a character flaw, i.e. that you're irresponsible? I mean, the most honest answer is, I don't know, maybe, but not necessarily, right? And I think that's something that individually maybe we can tackle or, or you do, but that is certainly something that you go before God and say, Lord, what is going on here? Is this a reflection of my responsibility, my capability, or is this something that's a test of my spirit and my character, right? What is it you're wanting to do with my life right now? 43. I, I'm sorry. I do need to wrap up. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to wrap up. I'm sorry. Uh, so, cool. I appreciate your thoughts and insights. Fill out and complete the pastoral reaffirmation form if you can, and let me close this out in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the saints. I'm so grateful for these young women and young men and uh, the desire they have to enter into your presence and know you, God. And I'm excited. I'm excited for us to be able to grow in our faith and to have our minds, our hearts, and our spirits reshaped by your Holy Spirit right, into being able to see the world and uh, to, to see the world the way you want us to and uh, live as citizens of the kingdom and not as citizens of the world. And God, I pray that you give us the courage to live differently, the courage to live according to your principles and the way you've called us to and not in the way that everyone else in this world is screaming at us to do so. And God, we trust you that you, God, who are just and fair and righteous, 
that, God, we will experience the fruit of that righteous and just and loving judgment someday. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We honor you in everything that we do with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.